Mackerel Podcast number 431 for October 28, 2014, brought to you by the great courses, learning at your pace, whenever and wherever you are. Welcome to another podcast episode. I'm your host, Chris Breen, with co-host, of course, who is... I'm Susie Oaks. She is Susie Oaks. First thing that I think everybody's head up about is Apple Pay and uh, the retailer revolution, which yeah. is, is not really people waving around red books or flags, but um, kind of not cooperating. So what's the story on this? Yeah, it's been weirdly scandalous. Um, Apple Pay launched last Monday, and it just kind of worked. So even places that weren't official launch partners like CVS and Rite Aid, if they already had the contactless payment terminals, which a lot of these places you know, just do, you could just walk up and use Apple Pay. I used mine at Rite Aid on the first day, and it worked just fine. And the clerk had no idea I was going to do it. And I was like, oh, I just paid for this with my phone. And he's like, oh, that's cool. So, but then a couple of days later, they turned it off. And that has made a lot of Apple nerds very angry. I think calling the nerds makes them angry too. Well, you know, I do it very affectionately. <laughs> okay. Um, so what's your take on it? I, I definitely have my views on this, but I, I wanna have somebody with a more reasonable opinion first. Well, it's annoying. I think some of the reaction has been a little outsized. I saw people say on Twitter like, oh, I'm just gonna, Put it, take a cart and fill it up with expensive stuff and then go up there and when they won't take Apple Pay, just be like, well, I'm not buying this. And I feel like that's a little bit childish. I mean, like you couldn't use Apple Pay a week ago and we all got along just fine. And I like using Apple Pay. And, you know, if I remember to go to Walgreens instead of CVS, I will use Apple Pay at Walgreens, but I'm not like driving across town to go to Walgreens if CVS has the gallon of milk I need and it's right there. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think the point was that it was on and then it was off. And the reason that they turned it off is reportedly because they're going to be in this, there's like a merchant consortium that's prepping their own um, mobile pay system. So they don't, you know, they, they want to use theirs and only theirs. And it, because then they'll get your data. Like it'll be more, it'll be directly tied to your bank account. So it'll be more like the rewards cards that we use now. Mm -hmm. And I, I use those rewards cards everywhere because, you know, I don't mind them seeing what I buy. But um, the cool thing about Apple Pay is that the merchant doesn't know anything about you. They don't even get your name. So, yeah, some of the merchants were like, oh, we didn't we didn't sign up for this and we're turning it off. So I understand the anger at one, on one hand. But, I, you know, I feel like it's it's enough to vote with your feet and with your dollars and remember that it's kind of a privileged thing to get mad about. I mean, this right. is only iPhone 6 owners that this affects. So, you know, I guess that that's maybe that's a population that's just used to people, you know, catering to them all the time. But um, yeah, be nice to the employees is basically my my thing. Like, don't don't yell at the poor guy behind the cash register or the poor guy who has to restock all the stuff that you like, you know, walked out and left behind. So, um, yeah. What do you think? Um, I'll play devil's advocate here because actually I kind of believe this. I, I agree with you that I think some people sound a little entitled about this and abusing people that work at retail stores is not cool. You know, don't do that. Um, I think that when people talk about Apple Pay, they, th they think a lot about the consumers because naturally it is. It's a very convenient thing for us to be able to do. And I mm -hmm. agree the security thing is great, much better than anything else that's out there right now. And um, I also understand it's good for Apple. Apple will make 0.15% on any transaction conducted through Apple Pay, which is not a lot. 
However, it's like micropayments. If you do enough of these things, it adds up to serious money. For example, in the U.S., I think we conduct over $2 trillion of credit card transactions a year. That works out to $3 billion if you're looking at a 0.15% um, percentage. So it doesn't mean that Apple's going to get all that money, but it but by the time you get it, it adds up. So there's clearly a benefit yeah. to Apple here. It's not them just being nice. You know, they want to make money on this. Um, what I don't think is getting talked about enough is the retailers. And I think too many people have sort of painted devil's horns and tails on them and said, oh, they're evil for not letting us do this. Well, really, they're under the thumb of the credit card companies. And I think they're looking at technology as well and thinking, what's in it for us? And I don't think there is much for it. Uh, for them in this because it still leaves them under the thumb of the credit card companies. Apple Pay isn't Apple acting as a bank. It's working in league with credit card companies. So retailers are going to continue paying credit card fees. This isn't going to get them out of it. And I think they felt like they were at a crossroads here. Like, okay, we're going to have new digital payment systems. This is going to offer us something as well. And I don't think it is offering them, th them very much. So I do think they're looking at things like currency, which is that system that's going to be coming out in 2015 as maybe a way out of this because it doesn't involve credit card fees. That means they're, they're not paying the 2 to 3% to the credit card companies for stuff, which maybe they'll pass off some of those savings to customers, but I'm not relying on that. I think they'll just pocket it. Um, but this is a, a system that they felt was unfair, and now they're being uh, criticized for trying to find a better way so that they can continue to make money because they are in business after all to do this sort of thing so um as much as i think a lot of people want to look at cvs and rite aid as the bad guys in this i think they're trying to find some way where they get something out of this deal as well and currently i don't think they are so um take it easy on them again don't leave your cart full of groceries there in the aisle yeah it's it's kind of the only thing that's sort of built in for the retailers at this point is that they would get you know these these affluent customers like that the apple customer is a good customer to have yeah. if you're you know a store yeah i think it is um but at the same time i think they have other kinds of customers as well so people on fixed incomes for example are not going to have an iphone 6 that they're going to wave around in front of it, this thing right um that may find using something like currency where you do get some kind of reward at the end of the thing is maybe a better deal for them Maybe they don't care about giving up their personal information to somebody like CVS or Rite Aid, but rather, hey, I'm going to get a 2% discount on these drugs that I have to buy week in and week out versus the convenience of putting a phone in front of this that I don't own. Um, yeah. So I think there are other ways around this, and I think there's maybe there'll be situations where currency does benefit consumers who, again, don't care about losing information to people. It's just that I, I don't think that this is such a black and white issue that retailers are evil and Apple is good. I think everybody's looking out for their self-interest in this, and retailers, as much as anybody else, are saying, we want to benefit in some way, too. So yeah. we'll see. Um, yeah, so that was the big Twitter burnout this week. You have an iPad 2 Air, yes? Yes, I do have the iPad Air 2. Do you also have the, the Retina 3? Um, the Mini? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they are both here. Okay. Well, since you've been messing around with them, I'm interested in your impressions because I don't have them yet. 
Yeah, so the air too is pretty great. I actually took it out to Shoreline yesterday for the Bridge School Benefit concert because um, I was there with my family and my two-year-old I thought might need some distracting besides, you know, all the, the pretty music being played. So I brought it for him and I also thought it would be a good t- chance to kind of take the camera for a test mm. and see if it really does work better in bright sunlight. So the camera tests are still kind of ongoing, but the pictures look really good. I, a few people did make fun of me for taking pictures with the camera because I'm, I'm not usually an iPad shooter. So I definitely saw a couple people like just, you know, giving me funny looks. And one guy was like, <laughs> so those days are not over yet. Yeah. Some guy was like, nice camera. And I'm like, OK, I'm reviewing it. And it's gold. So whatever. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and now I'm going to take a picture of you. Yes. And I'm going to run that in my review. Yeah. Um, show you, buddy. Yeah. But my my son was playing with it in, in the bright, bright, bright sunlight you know that that mid-afternoon sun mm-hmm. where it's like just right there and he was having no problems so i mean like you know it, it wasn't bright it wasn't as bright as it would be inside but you could see it like you could see it the whole time there wasn't any we didn't have to like try to build a little tent for him out of jackets to to have him use it in the sun so that was huge and then this isn't because he's got magic baby eyes but rather normal people would would look at this compared to the old one and say wow this is not nearly as reflective as the old yeah one. yeah it's not nearly as reflective and it's yeah you just don't when you look at it in the sunshine you don't see only your face looking back at you you can actually see the content on the screen we had you know the brightness was all the way up and you know you would kind of wish that it would go up a couple more notches but it was usable okay any noticeable performance increase um, I didn't do a lot of stuff with it yet. I installed a bunch of apps that seem to go pretty fast. I have to do some um, side-by-side tests of trying to do some uh, you know, more intensive things mm-hmm. like using the new Pixelmator and some of the video editing apps that they were demoing on stage. And I want to get that on the first Air and the second Air side-by-side and you know, start tasks and see how much quicker the Air 2 can, can whip through them. But it's, it, when they tore it down, um, iFixit found two gigabytes of RAM in there. So... So it's got a lot more power than the last one does. I just haven't done as many side-by-side tests as I wanted to. I need to dig out the first air. Yeah. And what about the thinness? Do you notice it? I do. Um, hmm. I, I haven't, I wasn't using the air as my, you know, all the time iPad. So I've been coming from like the bigger iPads and this thing is so light. Like when, yeah. So I've, I've been using the, the Mini 2 a lot and it just doesn't even seem that much bigger than the Mini 2. Huh. Like just holding it in your hand, it just it's it's so light. It's it's like you're holding a phone, but it's really really big. Like it doesn't feel like oh this is a big tablet. Um, I don't even notice it in my bag. So yeah, I'm I'm really happy with it. It seems like the best iPad ever. I mean, clearly so. Yeah. So yeah, the review should be up uh, later this week when I can get the rest of those tests done. Okay, and then what about the bendability of it? <laughs> I didn't try to bend it yet. What? <laughs> That's what everybody's going to want to know about. Yeah, it's like, right? oh, does it bend? Oh, look, it bends. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll bend it like Beckham and let you know. But um, yeah, hopefully it doesn't bend. <laughs> I don't want to bend it. Don't no, bend your iPads. No, it's a bad idea. Okay, and then the, um, the iPad Mini uh, 3, which uh, generally people say, yeah, it's got Touch ID. Yeah, it's weird. All it has is Touch ID and gold, and they didn't change anything else. So if you put iOS 8 on your iPad Mini 2 and you don't mind not having Touch ID, it's it's fine. Um, I would, if I was going to buy an iPad Mini today, I would buy the two. 
But I would miss Touch ID a little bit because I have it on my phone now. It's on the big iPad. It, it's it's you know I'm glad that they put it on the mini. It seems like the mini would be kind of you know it would be a bummer if there was just this one iPad that didn't have it. But it also doesn't seem worth the hundred dollar you know premium over over the second one, which is a very good iPad. It has the same chip, same speed, same battery, same everything. The thing I like about the Mini now that the Air doesn't have is that they took that switch off the side of the Air, yeah. the, the mute slash rotation mm-hmm. lock switch. Th- that's still on the Mini, but it's not on the Air anymore. Do you miss it? A little bit, yeah. I mean, you know, you just swipe up to Control Center and you can mute it or kill the kill the rotation. But I liked having the switch. I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to recall the last time I used the switch. I I kind of forget it's there. Um, because I have gone to Control Center pretty much for everything now, and I just changed my habits, and so... Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I'll get used to it. Yeah. Um, at the risk of giving away the the end of the story, what's uh, what's your buying advice on these things? Um, if you have the first Air, you know, you'll probably be fine with that for a while, but if you have the old big iPad, then you're going to love the Air 2. It's just so much lighter and, like, really, really stupid fast. If you were going to buy a new big iPad today, I would get the iPad 2 over the first one because the A8X chip and the RAM, I think, is just going to make you want to keep it for longer. You Mm -hmm. might want to upgrade sooner if you get last year's. But since the minis are, you know, the same component-wise, I would would get the mini from last year. Yeah, I think if if the payment systems were more advanced, we're using it for more, maybe that extra $100 bump in the Touch ID would make sense. Mm-hmm. But right yeah. now, just to unlock the thing makes so little sense to me to, to pay that extra money for. Yeah, and they, they found NFC chips in them in both of them when they tore them down. So maybe Apple will add something later, but you know, it seems like it, they wouldn't spend money on an NFC chip and put it in there and never use it. But they're not using it right now. Well, they're certainly not using it CVS, are they? No, <laughs> no one is. No. <laughs> <laughs> Those poor Google Wallet users, like all twelve of them, like caught in the caught in the middle here. I, I like, know. I was using Google Wallet at CVS, and no one cared. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, now that we're, now we're going to just jump back to the last topic. <laughs> but right, because they had all these things in the in the stores, and like nobody was using them, and suddenly. They panic when Apple Pay comes out, but yep. but nothing else. Because they've had these terminals for a couple of years now, and go, oh, what are these for? I think they get in the way. We we put pens in them or something to hold the pen in there. And now uh, suddenly people are using Apple Pay. They go, oh, this, this is bad. We've got to move to something else, and we're yeah. not quite ready to do it. So we'll just turn them off. So. Right. Okay. So um, before we go into a couple more things, uh, a word from the great courses. Learning at your pace, whenever and wherever you are. Most of you are listening to this podcast because you like to learn new things, and I've always been a curious learner, too. And that's why I love The Great Courses. The Great Courses, which has been in production for over 20 years, are engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors and experts in their field. Listen to or watch The Great Courses with online downloads and streaming via their apps or on DVDs or CDs at your own pace, and there are no exams at the end. They offer over 500 subjects, including science, history, music, photography, and more. Now, I'm currently watching their Understanding Investments course by Duke University's financial economics professor, Connell Fullenkamp, and I'm watching this particular course because, well, I'm an idiot when it comes to finances, and this has helped me with learning about managing and investing money. 
In the course, I've learned about things like stocks and mutual funds and bonds, market cycles, diversification, and what I've been told is the miracle of compound interest. It's a subject that I found intimidating in the past, but thanks to the course, I'm starting to get a handle on it. I'm not ready to be a day trader, but at least I can now understand the monthly statements I receive and I can carry on a reasonably intelligent conversation with a broker. I really want you to try it. The Great Courses has a special offer for Macworld listeners. Order Understanding Investments and get 80% off the original price. That's 80%. But this 80% savings is only available for a limited time. To take advantage of it, don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash Macworld. That's thegreatcourses.com slash Macworld. Okay, earlier, it was last week, yeah, we ran the iTunes 12 review, and our reviewer, Kirk McElhern, was not entirely impressed with it. No. And nor am I, and, uh, and I wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, I don't really like it. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Next topic. Yep. Done. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, well, see, here's the thing. I don't like iTunes. I try not to even launch it. It's it's a resource hog, and it's just so big. And I've kind of abandoned my big music collection for streaming. So mm-hmm. I, I use a MacBook Air as my you know daily machine. So I don't keep a ton of music stored on it. And then I'm a happy RDO subscriber, so I just stream everything on RDO all day long. I do have a big collection of music. I used to collect bootlegs, even back in like we had to, you know, download FLAC files and you couldn't download them and you would burn them on a data CDs and send them to people in the mail. And so I, I was really nerdy about about music and I have a really big collection, but I just don't keep it around. Like it's on my iMac, which is in storage because I don't have a three plunk plugs in my house and it's this whole mess. So anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, I've just been streaming for the last year or so and I haven't been in a big hurry to solve my you know local music collection problems because streaming has been so good to me. So, and the other benefit of it is that I never need iTunes. So I've been managing my apps just on the phone itself and I haven't been launching iTunes. So when I do launch iTunes, it's just like, wow, this thing is a mess and yeah, so I was, you know, I helped edit Kirk's piece and was, you know, checking everything in iTunes. And yeah, he's right. Like just finding stuff to play and then playing it is is so many clicks. And I know you can turn this off, but I really don't like how it shows, you know, every single thing I've ever purchased in my library. Um, I, back on the MacLife podcast, like years ago, we used to do this thing called Keep or Delete, where we would download the free song mm-hmm. every week and then say if we were going to keep it or delete it. And most of them I deleted, but now they're all there. <laughs> It'll be like, remember this holiday song that you downloaded like six years ago? And I'm like, oh, God, when is this thing ever going to go away? So, yeah, I don't I don't like it. I like how easy they they made it to get to the store. But I think his point about there being like three different sets of controls for what was being displayed and how it was being sorted, like that's just kind of, that's kind of bananas. I don't know. Um, I don't know if you can go back. Is it, hard, is it easy to go back? I feel like I didn't even upgrade to it on purpose. It just kind of came in with some other upgrades. So, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I'd like to go back to like iTunes 9. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd like to find a way to go back. I I tried the simple way of like putting, you know, iTunes 11 on there and getting rid of iTunes 12. No, that doesn't work because they're low-level components that are not compatible. So particularly if you've downloaded Yosemite, it's built in. And yeah. you, I can't find a way to get iTunes 11 on there, although I'm going to keep trying. 
But the thing is, I didn't like iTunes 11 that much either. So you're sort of downgrading to another version that was sort of like, yeah, this still doesn't solve the problem. I kind of get what Apple's going after here. If you take the, you know, three steps back and you look at the thing, they're trying to make it more contextual. And I kind of admire that idea so that most people, and I think the general user is like, I just want to see one kind of media. So you click on music and that's all you're going to see. You're going to see only music and you click on the little movies button, you're going to see only that stuff. Then when you click on the iTunes store, you're only going to see the movie section of the iTunes stores because you were looking at your movies collection over here. And I get the idea of that. I think that they've been hunting around for a, some way to kind of clean this up. And I think they're also sort of stuck with the um, design f- ethic of Yosemite, which is to pare everything down and make it as minimal as possible, which is why you have these buttons that perform different ways depending on the context of what you're doing at the time. Intellectually, it's a great idea. It's like, oh, that's very clever that you're doing that because I'm looking at movies, therefore I want to continue looking in, a, in the movie section of the store. But I think coming from it from the old days, it's harder because you just want to get to all your stuff and the ways for doing that are not as intuitive as they once were. Then when I think of how do you create an iTunes that actually works, I have no idea. I can't imagine what that challenge is like for the people that are trying to do it. And you could see they're making efforts. I don't think they hit the nail on the head this time, but I don't think they did last time either. So maybe you're right. Maybe it's going back to iTunes 5 or something where before they started adding all the iOS stuff and the podcast stuff and the iTunes U stuff, and it really was kind of a simple music catalog or player, maybe that was the better approach. And then you start splitting the thing out into discrete apps, but then you know people will scream about that as yeah. well. Yeah, it's weird because everywhere else in the Mac and iOS world, the operating systems are kind of getting closer together, but on the mm-hmm. iOS side, what would be iTunes is like five apps. I mean, you, yeah. have, you have podcasts, you have iTunes Store, you have App Store, you have, you know, so you have music, um, videos is its own app now. So, so, yeah, I don't know if I'd want all those apps on my Mac, but I feel like maybe they could run a little leaner and mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't, you know, dread opening them in the way that I don't like opening iTunes. Like, as soon as I noticed that I left it open, because, you know, I was looking up something in the store, and I see it, and then in my dock, like, I always have to close it right away, because it, <laughs> it, just, it just slows down my whole Mac. I don't you know. shudder and go, Ugh, Yeah, I'm like, that. ooh, why is it there? So the, the red icon helps with that. It's like, hey, red, iTunes is open, red flag right there in your dock. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one thing I think would be really cool is that if, you know, maybe I think Siri needs to be be all up in iTunes. Mm-hmm. Because, so you can just say, play that thing. Yeah. I mean, on all the, the Siri commercials when they had, like, a lot of them, would, they would show, like, oh, Siri, play me the song, and, and, and there it would go. But that, that doesn't work on the Mac. And I think voice control would be really great because you know what you want, and it takes so many clicks to get there. But if you could just say it and it would happen, I think that would be better. Yeah, and I think you have a really good point about streaming as well, and that's actually the next thing we're going to talk about, is that if you do stream, and I do too, I hardly touch iTunes, and maybe that's... It's nice, right? <laughs> yeah, because I do everything through Sonos, and so I've got my interface there, and I can look for stuff across four or five different music services. It just pulls it up, and I stream it, and it's done. So when I have to go into iTunes, and sometimes I'll use it to manage an iOS device, because I've I find it easier to manage via iTunes than to do it on the device itself. It is kind of a shock, and 
you know, try to dig through all this clutter to get to, to the thing that you want. Um, so the question is then, who is really using iTunes anymore? I think younger people are streaming a lot, so they don't buy music all that much. Yeah. Um, and then, so people who have massive music collections are frustrated by it because it's hard to manage the stuff. And you can't really use it with iTunes Match because you have more than 25,000 tracks. So is it really sort of the mom and pop app now where really all you're doing is managing, you know, three or four dozen albums and a couple of movies, in which case maybe it's not so bad. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot of its annoyances are probably not so bad if you have a small collection. Um, but then, yeah, when I just sort of put my collection on ice and went to all streaming, like I just found I didn't really miss it. I didn't yeah. miss messing with metadata. I didn't miss like, you know, duplicate copies and tracking down album artwork and there's all these like chores that that I was happy to leave behind so so yeah I really like streaming I my a friend of mine was was trying to get me to do streaming for years and I was like no I mean you're just renting your music and as soon as you stop paying per month like it all just poof goes away and he's like yeah but I mean I have the stuff that I really care about and I found new artists and albums on streaming that I've gone ahead and bought because I'm like okay I want to have this forever and I'll forget. So, um, so yeah. But there's a lot that you know that I wouldn't really care that much about if it if it I didn't have it. So yeah, like I don't need copies of all those Taylor Swift albums. But every once in a while, just spin a Taylor Swift album because it's fun. So did you put? Have you played the new one? Not yet. I'm going to. All right. Yeah. Um, well, because that's the next topic, which is uh, worldwide. Sales of down or purchase, sales of uh, music are down thirteen percent, mm-hmm. and this is not just a sudden whoops, wow, where'd that come from? This has been going on for a long time, yeah. And uh, so the reasons being cited are well, first of all, there was there's been no platinum album this year, wow, yeah, which tells you something about th- this year's music, I I suppose, That's or crazy. You're right. Or it tells you about the audience, which is the record, the former record buying audience is, uh, has aged out. I know my daughter only streams music and she's, she loves music. It's not like she doesn't care about it, but because we have access to, you know, Beats and, and Spotify and some, and Rhapsody, that's all she does. Mm -hmm. And so you've got younger people who are, who are streaming or you listen to YouTube, uh, get a lot of music that way. And then you have older listeners who, after, say, age 35 or 40, they're not buying new music so much because they want to listen to the stuff they grew up with. Yeah. So now you've got this very narrow window of people that are still buying music. Um, so maybe Apple's decision to buy Beats wasn't so bad after all. No, I think it was really smart. Um, when I was looking at iTunes 12, I was like, oh, God, how are they going to cram Beats in here, too? But, um, yeah, they... Beats is a really good service. Of of all the streaming ones, I think it it does a really good job of letting you listen to whatever you want. But then, so the the thing the streaming services are trying to crack now is um what do they call it like lean back listening when you don't you have access to like ten million songs and then sometimes you're like I don't know what to play and you want to just so like on RDO they show me what my friends are listening to and I can kind of start there or they have um, personalized stations that kind of work more like Pandora and play mm-hmm. you stuff that they know you like based on your listening history. Um, Beats Beats does it really well because I guess they added some curation. So the yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, and the the the, the 
playlists just seem to be like spot on like they're they're just so much fun to listen to so so it's going to be interesting to see like how apple kind of puts its own stamp on that or if they just let it stand alone for a while more yeah i i'm interested because itunes radio while free with with match is okay it's not very smart it's not nearly as smart as pandora where if you tune a pandora station correctly pretty much everything you hear you like yeah. whereas with itunes radio just unless you get you hit a curated playlist it's just weird they'll throw stuff together and it seems like it's okay then suddenly something comes way out of left field and you think where did that come from and you can you know thumb down forever you know but still there's something weird is going to come later on whereas beats is really good it's its algorithms are pretty good but um it's curation where people actually have have said you know these are the top 25 latin tunes from 1985 that really matter and they really are those tunes and maybe you've never heard them before but it all makes sense to you and and i think that's the real strength of the service whereas pandora's got the algorithms beautifully done beats has, has the human curation done correctly but i'm interested in so you had a friend that was trying to get you to stream yeah you, for you wouldn't, you wouldn't you so what was the turning point when you went oh um, I think it, it started when Spotify came to the U.S. and there mm -hmm. was just such a big story that all the tech you know you kind of had to try out Spotify. There just wasn't a question. And then uh, another friend was already using RDO, and I was complaining to him about Spotify. Like it's hard for me to find mm -hmm. you know, something to listen to, and it, you had to have Facebook to to. to join so that was sort of annoying i mean i had facebook so that wasn't a problem but then it, it wanted to put everything on facebook and we're kind of like trying to tweak the social side of it down and he's like you know who does social even better than spotify is rdo so i joined rdo and i just kind of got hooked to having everything so yeah i mean i'm kind of in between those generations of streaming only and oh i used to have a big collection mm -hmm. but so you know there were a lot of songs and music that I had like from high school that I didn't have anymore because like I lost those CDs or I sold those CDs or a roommate stole those CDs so it kind of let me like jump back to when I had all this music that I had like you know lost track of without having to buy it all again because it's you know makes people grumpy to have to buy music yeah, in a yeah. new format that you can like I already own this so so it was great and then and then the new music coming out was so well sorted. And if I followed people whose tastes I like, I was discovering a lot more. So I wasn't just listening to like the same artists over and over and over again that I had been listening to the whole time. So it was like, you know, bands that you've heard of, but you haven't really had a chance to like dig back into their cat. So, you know, I spent a whole like two days just listening to nothing but Roy Orbison. Because I, you know, I've heard his songs and they're great, but I hadn't been like, okay, what's what's the deal with Roy Orbison? Yeah, you can yeah. really dig in and, you know, RDO's like, yeah, I have 40 Roy Orbison albums. Like, let's do this. So so it's been great for both um, the new bands that you hear about and you're not sure, you know, if they're any good. Like, I listened to that Miley Cyrus album that people were talking about to see, mm -hmm. you know, kind of judge for myself. But, you know, heck if I was going to spend $15 on it and <laughs> iTunes. Right. So, so, yeah, I just listened to it on RDO. So I just got really hooked that way. And I stopped caring that I wasn't going to own all this music because I realized that I don't need to own all this music. And if I owned it, then I would have all these files, like, sitting on a hard drive somewhere that it's my job to, you know, sort and organize and not lose. A lot of listening to music was, was habit-based for a long time. And, and Steve Jobs certainly didn't help when he came out early on when the iTunes store came out and said, people want to own music. Mm -hmm. you know, as if this is true and it will always be true that people want to own music. 
And I believed him at the time, too, until I started streaming stuff and then went, no, I don't want to own music. And I, I have, you know, I'm old enough that I still have LPs, and I've got about 1,500 of them. And I kept them. I didn't sell them. I don't know why, because I never play them, but I just like the, the form factor. And, um, and I was, was one of those people that, as you get older, you think, well, they're not making good music anymore, these kids today. You know, you shake your fist in the direction of the East or something, or toward Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and then, actually, when you take the time to explore and have a means to do so, when you've got 15 million tracks available to you and you have some good guidance, you discover, no, there's a ton of good music being done today. Yeah. Even if you, you know, even if you still like the music of the 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s, there's enough stuff that takes its inspiration from there that you can find stuff today that sounds kind of like that or, or has hints of it. And also, like, as for you with the Roy Orbison stuff, I've been able to explore jazz, which I've kind of liked, and I always liked Miles Davis a lot. But to be able to then go back and look at Miles' stuff and then look at some of the people he played with and then start exploring their catalogs mm -hmm. and getting a much broader understanding of what music was like at that time has just been invaluable. And yeah, if I stop paying my $10 a month, all that will go away. But I've done very well by it when I used to spend three or $400 a month on music, buying this stuff. And now I have three services. So for 30 bucks a month, I get access to everything. And yeah. I play it all the time. And uh, and I can see why people aren't buying music nearly as much as they did. Because like you say, with the, the uh, Miley Cyrus thing, you're taking a chance dropping 15 bucks and hoping that what comes out the other end is something you're going to listen to yeah. more than one time. Um, although I hear the arguments that say, well, but if you're not invested in your music, you won't listen to it often enough. And therefore, uh, you're going to miss something like, no, this album requires five listenings before you really understand what the intention <laughs> of the artist was. I kind of get that. I mean, there are some albums that take a while to grow. Yeah, that you. happens to me too. But um, I think generally, you know, one or two listenings kind of like yeah i either like it or i don't and uh and so then you could just kind of move on to the next thing when you have that that kind of choice yeah i've still bought some uh albums that i found on rdo that i was like i love that album i want to know that i have it forever and went and bought it um it's always fun too to buy cds at concerts because then you're like yeah. oh i'm giving ten dollars to the band and they're gonna put gas in their tank and go to the next town so you feel like you're really helping a little better well and that's the other thing about buying music and i I don't think that people are always as generous as that, but that's the downside of streaming is the artists are not getting paid nearly enough yeah. for that stuff. So if music sales go away, how do artists support themselves? And I think what you look back to is the model pre-1963, and that's where artists you know, are starving and, uh, and concertizing. So they're out playing live, and that's how they make their money, or through merchandising, or as a number of artists are doing now, through fan support. Basically, either like selling uh, MP3s at shows or CDs at shows or Kickstarter-like projects where you just say, I love this band. I want them to put out another album. So sure, here's 20 bucks and, mm -hmm. you know, send me a T-shirt at the end of it. Yeah, I've listened to Fish for years and they have just monetized. I mean, they were always kind of a live bass band. They do, mm -hmm. they do albums, but they're more of like, here's a snapshot of like, you know, how we sounded at this particular time. None of them have ever sold very well. And they make their living playing a lot of concerts, but they've really embraced technology. You can download the concert within, you know, an hour of it being played. 
Um, if you put in the the barcode from your ticket, you get a free copy. They do a lot of webcasts where you know, because and, and their fan base is getting a little older too, and we don't want to like jump in our VW buses and follow them like all <laughs> summer. But you know, you can stay home with your with your kids and your job, and uh, and and just they call it couch tour. You just watch the shows over the webcasts, and they work really really well. So yeah, um, there, you know, there there's other ways, but. But yeah, it's the the out the artists aren't making as much on Skype streams. Did you? Or, sorry, on Spotify streams. Did you hear about the the artist that put out like a, a silent album and then had people like just play it on repeat all the time? <laughs> no, <laughs> they had an album of. It was like they they found out that Spotify's like you know minimum length for a, a track for them to get paid was like thirty seconds. So they made an album that was like a hundred tracks that reached thirty seconds and just told their their small fan base they were like a little indie band they were like hey just get on spotify and just put this on on repeat all night <laughs> awesome all of a sudden their their listens like spiked and spotify found it and was like oh you can't do that then they probably still paid him four dollars and 26 yeah 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 they were they were trying to like game this the skype system but i guess you could do that with any album and just turn your sound off i guess so yeah but i think i, I saw a figure once that like lady gaga made you know, when she had the Monster album or something, it's a huge album, and she made like seventeen dollars. I mean, it was just ridiculous the number yeah. of plays that that she had, and clearly something's got to be done there. I mean, I take advantage of the system again. I'm paying like ten bucks a month for everything, mm-hmm. and I know that that not enough of that is going to artists. I'm not sure who's making the money on this, um, but unfortunately, it's not the artists, and so I do think that some great music is not going to be made simply because artists can't support themselves anymore. So, uh, you know, yeah. they have more and more very tuneful uh, waiters and waitresses, unfortunately. Maybe a service will, you know, make that its its differentiation point. They'll be like, we're, we're the only one who's, who's paying, you know, decent money. Possibly, but then they're going to charge their users more. Yeah. And, you know, as much as we say, yes, artists should get paid, <laughs> when you go out, you know, when you confront them with your hand out, they go, oh, well, uh, you know, gee, I seem to be a little short. I must have left my money in my other pair of pants. Glad they uh, pay you Wednesday for some music today. Yeah, yeah, and we all talk a good story, but let's face it, we're all cheapskates. Yeah. So. Sorry. Sorry, artists. And, uh, and that's it. I think we're done for the day. So um, we'll be back next week talking about other stuff. Looking forward to it. Okay. And this episode of the Macro Podcast was brought to you by The Great Courses, learning at your pace whenever and wherever you are. And if you have any comments or questions, drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com. Thanks for listening.